So what I'm going to do with you today is run through two introductory lectures. Um, and I'm going to probably introduce a number of new concepts, ideas to you today. Um, and I'm only going to be able to give a little thumbnail sketch of each of them. So um, do interrupt me with questions, because that always makes the pace of sitting through something much easier. Um, and if you don't understand something, say so. And if we don't have time to look at it, I will say so in return. Um, but what I'm going to do this morning is give some introductory things, a little bit about what moral theology is, a little bit about the history of it in the Catholic Church that you kind of entered in the midst of a certain period. Um, and then some introductory thoughts about what, how we measure a good action as opposed to a bad action and what sin is and why we sin. So that's what I'm aiming to do this morning. Then this afternoon, I'll be looking at virtue. And one of the things I'll be noting this morning is that the concept of virtue is a paradigm to structure everything in our moral thinking um, has become very fashionable, um, and I'm a big follower of it as a methodology. So if you want to turn to the first one, that's one that's called Lecture One, and we'll start on the first page. And before we do anything else, I want to just define what we're looking at, what we're looking at in moral theology. And I'm quoting there um, a French Dominican called Sauvé Pinquet, and he defines the subjects as I've got there. Christian ethics is the branch of theology that studies human acts so as to direct them to a loving vision of God, seen as our true, complete happiness and our final end. This vision is attained by means of grace, the virtues and the gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit, in the light of revelation and reason. So three things to point out about that definition. Moral theology is a branch of theology. And theology is, in general, at subject matter, is looking at what God has said, God's speaking, and that the purpose of God revealing himself is in order to draw us to him that we might have union with God. And so moral theology is about achieving that purpose. It's about looking at how in concrete actions we do or don't achieve that union with God that is the basis, the purpose of his revelation to us. Secondly, moral theology directs actions to their final end, namely God. And our end, looking at God as our complete happiness, more precisely beatitude, that we are striving to God, not as some undesirable thing, but God seen as our happiness. That's why we seek him. And thirdly, uh, moral theology also has as its subject matter not just the end, Beatitude, happiness in God, but also the means to get to the end. So good acts lead us to a good end. And virtues um, are stable dispositions to such good acts. And the possession of virtues, as I've said, there is a partial possession of beatitude itself. So part of the reason to want to study virtue and know what virtue is and to possess virtue is that it is, even in this world, 
a partial possession of the divine beatitude. So that very briefly is our subject matter, moral theology. Um, the bit of God's revelation that relates to how we get to God. We turn over the page. Got a one-page summary here of the history of moral theology, and um, I'm attempting in just one page to summarise two thousand years. <laughs> so um, obviously, it's not adequate. Um, but I put at the top of the quest page there two questions that kind of focus what a lot of the history has revolved around or been problematic with. Now the two questions I put there is, firstly, is something good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? And a second question that kind of gives an example of that is, can God command you to hate him? So William of Ockham in the medieval period said just that. He said, if God commands you to hate him, then that is the right thing to do. That then becomes good because God has said so. Whereas St. Thomas Aquinas and the broader Catholic tradition would say, no, actually God is consistent with himself. He is a rational being. He can't command something that's irrational. He is love. He can't command you to not love. It would be contrary to himself. Now, that isn't a restriction on his freedom. Rather, that's the expression of his freedom. And at the instant I use the word like freedom, um, our modern notion of freedom that stems out of William of Ockham is very different to the classical Catholic notion of freedom. That the modern notion of freedom is all about being liberated from constraints. So therefore you are free to do anything, and God even is free to command you to hate him. Whereas if we first see freedom as flowing out of something else, flowing out of nature and purpose, um, then freedom has kind of inbuilt limits. It's the servant of something else. It, action follows being. So those two questions at the top there are both about commands. And in the history of moral theology, the place of command and obedience is a big thing to, to grasp. That obedience and commands and laws as expressions of the divine commands have been and haven't been the centre of moral theology at different times. So let's run through there. Got a few subheadings um, of history. So firstly, the fathers. So when we look at our most ancient texts in the fathers, we find scripture commentaries that don't give us a systematic treatise on moral theology as such. Um, kind of the one exception to that is kind of St. Gregory the Great. He's the one who articulates the seven deadly sins. Um, and long commentaries on them. But generally speaking, when we look to the fathers, we have to look at bits of them here and there in, the, in their sermons for writings on the moral life. But by the Middle Ages, what I've called the, the golden age of theology, and particularly of moral theology, when we come to St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, 
don't know how many of you have looked at the background and history of the, the St. Thomas Aquinas' moral uh, Summa Theologica, um, but there's a strong argument to be made that the whole reason he wrote it was to teach the moral life. That the Pope at the time had commissioned the Dominicans with a dual task of preaching and hearing confessions. Sorry for Yeah, do this much. Um, thank you. Those books, we'll send it about later. Um, we're working our way through these pages. Um, if you turn to page two on the first little bundle there. Probably easier if you remove the paper clip. Probably easier if you remove the paper clip. My just a little way down that page uh, looking at the history of moral theology um, in the Middle Ages and St. Thomas Aquinas. I was just saying that there's this um, popular notion now that the reason St. Thomas wrote the Summa Theologica at all was a moral purpose in order to give the background for teaching moral theology. So there are kind of five sections of the Summa Theologica and three of them are about the moral life, the middle three. So that the kind of beginning and end are the kind of the, the minimal packaging you need for that. As said there on the sheet, uh, St. Thomas's Summa Theologica integrates um, the tradition, scripture, the fathers, and the early doctors with philosophy, um, especially Aristotle, but also a bit of Plato. And the key thing I'd want to point out in terms of the history is that he structured it around the virtues. So when you look at the table of contents of a book, the table of contents in itself tells you a lot about what the author's trying to do. He's saying things, but he's structured them somehow. Well, St. Thomas structured everything around the virtues. So you'd have the, the theological virtues, the cardinal virtues, and all kinds of sub-virtues within those. And then within those, the vices that oppose those different virtues. But what he's concerned about is virtue. That's his chapter headings. And all that changes later in history. So very briefly, when nominalism comes along, um, so William of Ockham, a Franciscan, and to our shame an Englishman, um, found the philosophy of nominalism in the 14th century. So pretty much even before St. Thomas has managed to spread the Summa Theologica across Christendom. Nominalism is spreading and kind of overtakes it even before it becomes um, established. And the shift to note for our purposes is that with nominalism, law becomes the dominant motif rather than virtue. And if you look at the chapter headings that we find then in the works that follow, everything's structured around the commandments. Ten Commandments of the Church, the Five Precepts of the Church, um, everything becomes commandment and obedience focused. And that gives you, obviously, a very different vision of what the moral life is about. So the next little heading there is what I've called the, the Tridentine Manuals, um, up until the 1950s. Are you familiar with the manuals as a concept? 
So at the Council of Trent, after the Protestant Reformation, it was generally taken that the reason the Reformation happened was because of ill-formed clergy um, and ill-educated clergy. So the seminaries were set up. Is that where you the, 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 um, the classic jokes about what do I get for this? Oh yeah, look at look at um, Oh, for the confessions. <coughs> yeah. Yes. Um, the penitentials predate that, which would give you just a list of penances. Um, so some is that, is that growing out of nominalism? That predates it. And actually, the penitentials didn't give explanations. They just gave lists of penances for different sins. So you stole a sheep as opposed to a cow. You stole it from whatever. Um, you had a, a list, rather than it just being the utter whim of whatever priest you went to. I've, I've never actually, I've never actually read one of the penitentials, but I'm told. Cow sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quite handy, actually. Yeah, I'm just going to see where I'm going to get a copy. So it's not quite the same thing. No. So, Council of Trent writes, forms the seminaries to form clergy, and forms manuals to educate them. So the notion is basically that each subject, you have one big fat book, one manual that covers the entire subject. Um, so um, systematics, covering the Trinity, grace, everything else, one volume. Moral theology, one volume, and so forth. And if you look at your manual for moral theology, and you look at the table of contents, and compare it to St. Thomas, St. Thomas, as I said, structured it around the virtues. But the manuals have structured it around the commandments. So the dominant period of the last five centuries of Catholic practice has had a structure that is focused on the commandments, not focused on the virtues. Now, the advantage of focusing on the commandments is it does give you a nice, precise, exact, practical application. Can I do it? Can't I do it? Is it forbidden? Will I get punished? Um, it tells you. Um, you don't need to worry yourself about the quest for perfection, about doing better, just have I avoided hell or not. So it gives you a kind of very minimal focus, but a practical focus. It did have its advantages. And with that, the interpretation of the law came to be seen, generally speaking, as the purpose of moral theology. So I teach moral theology in the seminary now. Uh, a century ago, you would have expected the chap who was teaching moral theology to also be qualified in canon law, because these things went together, moral theology and the law. That isn't the case now. Um, and that was the case right up until the 1950s. Um, and I'm not going to kind of don't say anything there on the page, but the reaction in the 1960s and the revolt within the Catholic Church on so many matters of sexual teaching and others, in many ways it was a reaction to that legalism. So everything was expressed in can I, can't I terms. And so people felt, or some, felt liberated by casting it all off. Whereas if you have presented the moral life in terms of purpose, in terms of fulfilment, 
in terms of beatitude, then throwing those off just instantly doesn't seem as attractive. Um, so there's a reason why within the Catholic Church um, the dissent was expressed in the form it was, and it was in many cases a direct reaction to the legalistic focus that existed before. Um, are you able to, is it light enough for you to read? I would like a bit more light actually, yes. Yeah, so turn that on. So, question of virtue. So as I said, until the 1950s and a little beyond, law is the dominant paradigm. And even in your kind of liberal Catholic circles, avoiding the law is still the goal, but the law is the issue. So that you will find your people like Bernard Herring writing in a certain era shortly after the council even though he's kind of seen in many circles as this great liberal liberator, he's actually still focused on the law. And it's how to get you around the law and how to be free from the law, but actually it's still the law. So he kind of needs it. Well, do you, you need the law? Y yes. I mean, this is the, it's the inquiry thing that he's right yes. The reference point, isn't it? It's still the reference point. To give a different analogy, and the difference between virtue and the law as your focus, um, I often make the analogy of the body. Um, if you focus on the law, it's like focusing on the skeleton. And you need a skeleton. And if you take the skeleton out, you've not got much left. Um, but if all you do is talk about the skeleton, you're not actually talking about the body. Whereas focusing on virtue is actually a focus on the body. And an orthodox virtue focus will be aware that you need to keep the bones in place. You need to keep the skeleton there. That you can't say, well, I'm concerned with virtue. I'm not concerned about the bones. Well, actually, they, they go hand in hand. Um, back to my notes here. So down the page, 1981, I've put a, a date there. Alistair MacIntyre's book, After Virtue, alters the landscape. He reintroduces the Aristotelian account of virtue as the paradigm for ethics, a revolution started in the secular world, not in the Catholic one. Um, so he was a, came out of the Marxist tradition, writing in a secular context, not a Catholic. He came Catholic later. Um, but he wrote this book, After Virtue, that kind of turned the academic world in ethics on its head. Um, and he focused on the question of virtue. Which meant later, almost a generation later, within the Catholic Church, kind of catching up, many Catholic writers then started talking about virtue, even though virtue was being talked about by this non-Catholic in a secular sphere. So he eventually became Catholic? Yeah, yeah, but... I don't remember the exact timeline, but yes. yes. 1993, um, actually I need to correct that, that's now St. John Paul II's encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, um, which is on the moral life. He condemned numerous errors pervading Catholic moral theology, 
I've got a quotation there, which she said, it is no longer a matter of limited and occasional dissent, but of an overall and systematic calling into question a traditional moral doctrine. Dissent that was present in the Catholic seminaries, in the universities, and in the episcopate. Um, so the episcopate that we should <coughs> rely on as the reference point for orthodoxy is itself impregnated with the very thing that it's supposed to be existing to, to combat. Um, and you yourselves will be from a background where you're used in the Church of England to seeing your bishop as the enemy and the source of your problems, no doubt. Um, <laughs> but it shouldn't be, as a Catholic, the way you relate to your bishop. Um, now, our English bishops assured us that when Veritas of Splendor came out, that this didn't have any relevance to, to the English situation. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, others would have said differently. Um, so that was 1993. That's over two decades ago. Um, what's happened since then? Um, well, heresy hasn't gone away. In some circles, it's gone quiet or mutated. So I said there, post-veritatis splendor, much of the church continues in either private or public dissent. But for many, virtue has now been turned to as a new paradigm, a new way of returning to St. Thomas Aquinas. And the author I've listed there, Survey Pinkares, has become very fashionable um, as a moral theology interpreter of St. Thomas. Pinkares, French Dominican, deceased now, um, but if you're wanting to read a single very readable book of his, I'd recommend a book called Morality of the Catholic View, or A Catholic View. Um, actually, which I've footnoted there at the bottom. Now, as I say, that's a summary of 2,000 years in one page, um, but you, the kind of thumbnail issues I'm highlighting are not that complicated. Um, but it means you've come into the Catholic Church maybe thinking you were entering an oasis of peace and tranquility, um, and you haven't, um, because you've come into the Catholic Church in a moment of our history when actually everything's in utter chaos and instability here too. And there are points of reference that if you believe in orthodoxy and infallibility, you know won't shift because they cannot shift. But that doesn't mean everything else around them isn't in flux. And the reason part of that flux is all around us is because of the history where we've come from. So that I think the legalism of before is part of the reason of the, the anger and discontent in many forms of the rebellion now. Is the ordinary part of that? Of what? <laughs> of that, uh, of that flux. Moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's part of why you are reacted to with hostility in many circles, is a vision that you're going to be coming over as these reactionaries yeah. who will upset the balance and what has been achieved here. Um, the, the book called the, the Warlock Archive, which um, is his own, Archbishop 
Warlock's own account of his history of the time describes how basically the, the Catholic bishops in England created this kind of compromise in which the Catholic academics wouldn't publicly dissent from the church's teaching and the Catholic bishops wouldn't publicly talk about it. So that there would be no disagreement, we'd all be very polite and very English, and in many ways kind of more English than the Anglicans, you know, in that kind of external politeness. But because the issues of division weren't ever talked about. And then that stability is upset. Um, I was in seminary in the 90s when we had a huge wave of foreign Anglican clergymen come over mm. after the ordination of women. Um, and the ordinariate is another wave of instability threatening to upset the apple cart. But if the apple cart's only got rotten apples on it. It doesn't <laughs> I don't know if that's a serious enough answer for you. No, it's, it's, it's fine for me. Yeah. Um, it's just trying to gauge where we are, because we are at the moment in history. Pope Benedict's encyclical setting up the ordinary as a purpose. And it's just trying to discern that purpose and introduce anything into the mix with the reaction. And I'm certain that, as you described, I've certainly experienced that, albeit in a visit from my parish priest, he, mm -hmm. he wanted to really ask the question, who are you? What mm -hmm. do you want? Or how do you put it? How can we help you? <laughs> right. And I think, and I, and I said, can I reassure you? I'm not here to suddenly rush into church and do things which you probably have never heard of and forgotten about once. And he just laughed. You found the young girl clergy who said to be more orthodox, would they also be more orthodox? in this sense, towards the virtue In Catholic, in, what, in Orthodox Catholic circles, there is something of a division between law and virtue. So you'd have many that um, would, in a healthy sense, want to reclaim what was lost, but the only books they've got to return to are those old 1950s manuals with the law. Um, and those are worthy books. Um, but the number of circles where virtue is talked about as the paradigm is, I'm afraid, very small. Um, even across the universal church, the number of academic institutions where that is the primary focus is relatively small. What about the Dominicans now? The Dominicans would be, in this country, our great white hope. So there are hope in terms of numbers, um, that they are getting vocations, but that orthodoxy, spiritual faithfulness, breeds spiritual success, and, and they're a, a sign of that. So I think in Pope Benedict's mind, he, following John Paul II, has the vision of the new evangelization. But the awareness that the new evangelization in the church isn't happening, in a sense, in an evenly healthy organism that there are pockets of the new evangelization in the last 40 years, where there are places where a huge renewal is happening, even though elsewhere and almost in general, there's a general decline. So that I think you have been set up to be one such added force for renewal in the church.
even though structurally you are cutting across different lines than have existed before. I do a lot of work on C.S. Lewis. And right. Lewis wrote in the 1940s a book called The Abolition of Man, which is all about virtue ethics. Mm. You know, 40 years before Alistair MacIntyre. Um, bit of an outlier in that respect. Um, but was there nobody else before MacIntyre or Lewis who was there were some. beginning to start the ball rolling on this? There were some. So if you look at the pre-Vatican II manual, the ones very shortly before Vatican II, you will see a change, at least in some of them, of the table of contents. Uh, so I, I point out the seminary at Wanish to the seminarians. So some of them have now have chapter headings that are, and the chapters are the virtues. But then when you look at the content, the virtue of hope, the obligations and laws concerning hope. Right. Um, so there was a bit of a shift, but um, a long way to go still. Yeah. And I think we're still a long way to go before you get a nice, tidy book that incorporates all of that in a coherent package. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pinkeyers, who I referred to, he, his works are primarily historical, um, and he talks about moral theology in a historical manner. You haven't yet got a single systematic cover-to-cover account of the moral life from a virtue perspective. But the English Dominicans are um, very committed to this whole vision, um, and they're, they're great in academic and part of the new evangelization in this country.